Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, July 28, 2013. This is episode 1613 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to go to a fundamental subject today, that of food storage. Um, it's something that we talked about an awful lot when the show began eight years ago, eight and a half years, or eight years and a month ago, I guess, at this point. And um, we've talked about it over the years, but at, at times I kind of drift from it because in the end, you store food. But it's important to remember we have new people coming on, listening to the show for the first time all the time. We also have people trying to share the show with others and get them interested in modern survivalism and modern lifestyle design that we teach here. And these fundamental subjects reach to the heart and the core of what we do and why we do it. So it's good to uh, back up into these fundamentals once in a while. Before I get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor Uh, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. 
absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting and if there's a problem that gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was when well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, Directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells Nursery brings us a plant that we can grow in our own backyards to help feed ourselves. And with talking about food storage today, it's kind of a natural fit. Today's uh, plant of the week that I have for you is a perennial, as always, from Bob Wells, the Lappin's Cherry. This cherry is highly adaptable from Zone 5 through 9. The cherry is one of the few truly self-fertile options, making it ideal for small backyard growers with limited space. Additionally, it only requires 400 to 500 chilling hours. It is also one of the few cherries that can be planted in full sun, even in Zone 9, and handle the extreme summer heat in the south, yet cold-hardy enough to handle the extreme cold in Zone 5. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant and more at BombWellsNursery.com, and I can attest to it handling the heat. Um, I did lose one this year. Uh, I had four that I put in, three are still alive, one I lost. The one that I lost, I don't believe I lost because of the heat. Uh, we had what we call a natural well here, where one of the older trees had uh, created a well in the rock, the sub-rock here. We planted it into that hole because this was a large lapins, and uh, I think there was something used to treat that stump that chemically burned the tree because we were getting plenty of rain. It was it still wasn't hot out. The tree was looking beautiful. All of a sudden, it just, like, the leaves looked like somebody sprayed it with Roundup. So I think that, that the previous landowner must have used some kind of chemical in there that finally caught up with it because the other three are doing fairly well. And that is in spite of the fact that, like, every other cherry tree except for one that I've planted on the property, and I've planted a couple dozen uh, to try to establish cherries here as one of my crops, looks like hell right now. Uh, in spite of all the rain we got this spring, it hasn't rained now for the entire month and, and a, a good part of uh, June, honestly, with any meaningful rainfall. So uh, everything's dry, bone dry, except where I have irrigation, and they're not handling it. The Lappins, though, are. The Lappins, though, are. And, and everywhere I have cherries, they're getting watered. I'm doing some irrigating, uh, and it's only the Lappins that are surviving. So if you're in the south... And cherries are hard, and you, you you know you're like me, you're damn well bullheaded and want to do it anyway. Good one to consider. The other um, cherry pr uh, plant that I think's doing well for me here, and uh, I've worked with Nanking, and I thought that was going to work out, and they just don't really seem to like the summers either. They're surviving but not thriving. But there's a, a plant called Hanson's Bush Cherry. I don't think Bob carries those, but after he hears this, he might. 
Um, they are doing dynamite for me. And the cherries I got off them were smaller cherries um, than you get off a full-size cherry tree. But they tasted fantastic. So I'm pulling back on the Nanking plan and going forward with the Hanson's Bush Cherry and Lappins is my only cherries on our property. And we just thought I'd share that with you. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you help support the show. And you can do so at about 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more by going to survivalpodcast.com, clicking on Members. Why would you do that? Because you get discounts to so many things you're probably buying anyway. Your membership will pay for itself, and you support the show. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters all qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. TSPC service discount in the subject line. Email me at jack at com. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Do so before, not after you join. I can't retroactively discount you. Okay. So before we get into the main subject, one last thing to do to housekeeping, the year that was the episode, the year 1613. I have three for you. I have the Romanovs take power. Our troubles are over, right? I have Pocahontas is lured into captivity and the English are lured into peace. And I have the globe is burning. You can read two of these for yourself at TSP Wiki. I'm going to read the Romanovs take power and our troubles are over, right? After years of chaos, famine, cannibalism, and the death of the Tsar of Russia, what else could go wrong? These are the times of troubles. After a series of really bad leaders, they have won some real battles and kicked out the Poles. Recently, Poland had convinced the people to take a Polish royal as their new czar, but the Russians insisted that he actually show up in Moscow. He never showed. The great defender of Russia, Winter, kept him away. The nobles have decided to choose the czar through indirect secession. Michael Romanov is re related to Ivan the Terrible through an uncle, sort of. Even though legal justification for succession is a little shaky, they asked Michael to be czar. Michael is 16 years old, but he's not an idiot. He knows what happened to recently failed czars, but they convinced him that Russia really needs him. The Romanov dynasty will last until 1917, when Nicholas II will advocate, and then the Bolsheviks will murder all those who could make a claim to direct succession, and even those who couldn't. My take by Alex Shrugged. As you can imagine, the person running things in Russia was not a 16-year-old boy. The nobles were using Michael as a figurehead, but eventually Michael's father was found in a monastery. He made the he was made the head of the Orthodox Church and took the name of Patriarch Ferelit. Ferelit was the real power behind the throne, but there was no throne. The Romanovs were boyars, which are lesser provincial princes. They were not high nobility, so Western Europe aristocrats did not want to marry them at first. In time, the Romanovs married with various German noble families, which is really strange since historically the Russians and Germans fought some terrible wars against each other. On the other hand, during World War I, the main language spoke in Westminster Palace was German. The English royal family changed their name to Windsor because of their previous name, which is obviously was German, that everyone was getting nervous. Um, here's my take on this. So they, they give the power to a 16-year-old kid. And then basically to his dad through the, the church when they find him holed up in a monastery somewhere. wonder what he was doing there. But this takes place in 1613. From 1613, if you go to 1713, that's 100. 1813, that's 200. 1913, that would be 300 years. And a few more years later, 1917, this family finally comes out of power. 300 plus years. The Romanovs rule as royals in Russia. Why? because they were so viciously tyrannical and held on to power and wouldn't give it up? No. If you hear everything that happened in Russia up to this point, basically what the Romanovs brought to Russia 
or what came with them, maybe more accurately, was stability. And people will generally tolerate any government as long as their lives are reasonably okay. And, of course, once again, we see a government installed by the nobles. That would be the rich people, okay? So the government really wasn't in power. The nobles were in power, just like they always are, just like they are today. They install the government, and you believe that you have some say over it if you vote for the government. In this case, you have a, a royal government. But yet the people still are the ones that go apeshit and topple governments. And that's what happened with the Bolsheviks in 1917, out of the frying pan into the fryer, so to speak. But... In the end, the lesson here to me is when life is relatively okay and stable, people tolerate a government, period. And that's why governments try to keep their slaves happy. My take by Jack Spearco. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. If you're sharing with us with somebody new, feel free to direct them to, uh, to this part of the show, which is about... Oh, 10, 10, 11 minutes in, and uh, let them skip the intro segment if you want to. You can figure it out for yourself by looking at the time counter right about now. Because a lot of times new people are are better off just getting into the meat of the show like we're going to talk about now. Definitely the meat uh, is a good word for it since we're going to talk about food storage. Now, food storage is is at the fundamental core of what people call the survivalist or the prepper movement, and there's a good reason. Your body is a machine. It runs on a fuel that we call food. If you run out of nutritional food, you experience things like hunger and lack of energy. Eventually you get sick because you have a lack of health, so you have illnesses. And long enough, you die. So it makes sense that we would store food. But the reality is food storage isn't just for preppers. It should be for everyone. One thing I noticed years ago when I was uh, shopping for homes in Pennsylvania, this would have been back in 2001, uh, was pantry signs. We looked at a lot of homes up that way. And we looked at some, especially in the Northeast, there's a lot of older homes. They were 80, 100, 120 years old. They all had significant space for food storage. Even if they were smaller homes, old farmhouses and what have you, they also had big root cellars and things like that. But there was considerable thought when the house was constructed to where do we put all the food. We also looked at a lot of new builds, and we had these little bitty pantries about the size of a small coat closet. It's like we lost track of, of that thing. And if you look back and say, well, were our grandparents and great-grandparents survivalists? I, I don't think so, especially like we were looking around like the Allentown area, right? So that's kind of the area of Pennsylvania we were looking in. We weren't, weren't out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, that was an area fairly well developed at that point as industry was developing in eastern Pennsylvania. I think it's just that our, our grandparents and our great-grandparents were smart enough. They literally knew where their bread was buttered. In the pantry. And they want to make sure they were able to have a reasonable amount of food, get through winters, take care of their family, and have the convenience of having food there, produce some of their own food, all of that stuff. And they understood that if you're going to do that, you needed to, in other words, it was important to them. If, if we want to see what's important to people in this country today, it's, it's government, money, and religion. Those are the three big things that are important. And how can you tell? Where your, your biggest most expensive, elaborate buildings, governmental structures and monuments, banking and financial institutions, and churches. And you may not like that connotation that those are the three things that Americans actually care about today, but it's where we put our treasure. It's where we put our energy. You can see it. You know, if you go to a grocery store, you have a laminate floor and some aisles and some food. And we, 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 we care about food because we have to eat. But you don't see, you know, any type of effort put into the management of food 
that you do into the management of money, even at the individual level. There's a lot of people that have financial advisors. Now, a lot of them aren't worth their salt, but at least we, we think that way. I, I need to manage my money. I don't think we pay enough attention to it, but at least we do. People don't think about managing their food. But if you think about it, one of the primary reasons that you manage your money is so that when you're old and retired, you're not going to starve. You don't want to just rely on Social Security and eat macaroni and cheese and ramen noodles every night. And one of the biggest expenses that we incur in our entire life is food. So from just a standard lifestyle design, we need to be paying attention to food. On the other side, as a prepper, this is just dead set one of the most important things. And a lot of people that are outside the prepper movement think that preppers are always just focused on food. And I'll tell you, sometimes they're not focused enough on food because they're focused, especially guys, the tactical, the guns and the gear, and I can defend my home and take what I need and go hunt a deer or steal food if I have to. Yeah, that's not going to work out because the, the type of breakdowns we have are probably not going to be the way that the people that play Red Dawn in their head every day think they're going to be. There'll be partial breakdowns, regional restrictive situations. Um, I think one of the things we might look at uh, tomorrow possibly might be the potential for riots in this country from coast to coast at some point. Those types of things don't result in a, in a world where people go out uh, and live the way they do in a post-apocalyptic movie, but they do result in pinch points of supply. And the fundamental reality that people really need to understand as preppers with food is... I have been, and I probably am in the minority in this audience, uh, I've been shot at once in my life. Somebody tried to kill me with a gun once in my life. Uh, as well as in military service, but it wasn't a recognized conflict. It was some farmer that was pissed off uh, that we were sitting on uh, land in Honduras that he felt was his and he didn't feel the government compensated him for. Uh, so I, had, I was actually shot at once in my life. Um, some of you guys have served in our military for a lot longer than I did, and, and in modern times and have been shot at a bunch of times. Um, but if you take that out, if you take out service overseas in the military, most of us would say we've been shot at, hopefully, exactly zero times in our life. But I eat two to three times a day, and I have ever since I, I, you know, I, was, I came out of my mom. And I'm going to have to eat. I, I believe that we need to be ready to physically defend ourselves against violence because when you need it, you can do without security for a quarter of a millisecond. It's about how long it takes for you to end up dead or mortally wounded or wounded in a way that you, even if you don't die, you're, 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 you're compromised for the rest of your life. So we have to be vigilant with defense, definitely. But the reality is... Unless something goes wrong, you can literally live without security, your own security that you provide for yourself, for your entire life till you get in the grave and die an old man and never have a problem. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to some people. Nothing ever happens to them. Nobody ever hurts them, whatever. But there ain't a person on this planet yet that's figured out how to photosynthesize energy so we have to eat. So to ignore food is a fundamental management item in our lives. Whether we're preppers, survivalists, homesteaders, or just Johnny Sixpack, is dumb. And it's one of the main things that's made our people weak in our society and dependent upon government and systems of support. It's one of the reasons that we're such a, a frightened people. Because we're actually worried about this and we don't know what we're worried about. 
if you take a little like a little mouse or a rabbit or something, put it in a cage and stress it right in some way, eventually stress will kill it. It'll die. And I can be stressed just with electronic stimulation or not letting it sleep every time. Just hire a bunch of college students to sit there for an hour at a time for five bucks an hour, and every time it tries to fall asleep, just wake it up, right? And, and eventually that stress will kill it. Well, humans are more complex, but we're subject to the same rules. And we, because we're so complex, we actually can be stressed about something without even knowing what it is. We walk through our lives, we're stressed about money, we're stressed about supply, you know, where we're going we're gonna to get our food, where we're going to get our water, when our shelter's going to be. And we worry about this all from a standpoint of, is my job secure? We don't actually think about the individual things that means. But food security is one of them. The more parts of your life that you can bring into your own level of security, the less stress affects you, the healthier you'll be, and the better decisions you'll make. And, and to ignore one of the most fundamental survival needs of humanity in that regard is foolish. It's because our nation has become ignorant, absolutely positively ignorant, to what's necessary to sustain ourselves and to care for ourselves. We've literally outsourced the responsibility for our lives to government and corporations and financial institutions. Well, I don't think that's good enough. And I think this is one of the best places to start taking control of your life. So let's talk about my six reasons to store food. Reason number one is simply put, you know you're going to need it. Now, I'm sure we all remember, and some of us maybe still are at times where you're broke, and you need gas in your car, or you need fuel in your truck, right? And you pull up to the gas station, and you put 10 bucks in, because that's what you have. But if money is not tight, when you pull into the fuel station, what do you do? You fill the tank. And why do you fill the tank? Because sooner or later, you're going to burn that fuel anyway. And, and that's just a simple thing that people do. The only time that people tend to not buy something that they're going to eventually use anyway is they're either not going to use it for a very, very, very long time and expect that maybe the price will go down for some reason, or they just don't have the funding. But if you have the money and you're going to use it anyway, just from a convenience standpoint, you tend to fill the tank. That's how I look at food. If you don't go out and buy like 400 cases of Spam... Uh, because you don't want to be on Doomsday Prepper with it all stacked to the roof of your basement, and you're buying food that makes sense for you and your family in good times and bad, it's it, it's irrelevant to the, the to the economics, though it can work positively for you when done properly. We'll talk about that today. But it's irrelevant to just the, the concept that you were going to buy X amount of calories. Like that food was going to go in your house sooner or later anyway, maybe just next week or next month or next quarter or in some cases even next year, but you're going to buy it anyway. So if we can take control of this important area of our life and manage it, and all we're doing is, is acquiring something that sooner or later we were going to acquire anyway, it just makes common daggone sense. At least to me, a, a redneck duck farmer in Texas that's the son of a coal miner from Pennsylvania. I mean, if I can work that out, I would think the average American can. I also believe that one done properly, instead of like let's order five cases of MREs and put them in the basement, but one done properly, food storage saves you money. 
It saves you money by buying in bulk. It saves you money by taking advantage of sales and opportunity buys. If we design our lifestyle around food being storable, when we go to the store and they have something on sale, we can buy it in large amounts, including things that we don't think of as storable like meats. We'll get into that in a bit later. But, you know, every once in a while I've seen stores have something like Meat Madness. Or if you want to do what I recommend, which is buy local, if you go out and buy half a cow or a whole cow, or a whole hog, or half a hog, generally you pay less per pound for better quality meat than you would get from the store. And if you reach out to people in your neighborhood, and you say, well, you buy half a cow, I buy half a cow, well, then you can you can save even more money because you're buying effectively a whole cow, getting a better price. But it doesn't have to be a cow or a pig. It can be going to a farmer's market, and if you know how to store food, you got a guy sitting there with 400 pounds of freaking green beans and go, I'll buy 40 pounds of those if you'll cut the price by a 30 cents a pound. He just might do it if he doesn't want to take them home. Or going to a farmer's market and seeing a big giant basket of like bruiser apples and knowing a way like whether it's apple butter or dehydration or something that you could take those apples that, that are five bucks for 50 bucks worth of apples and do something with them. Or it can be going to the store and simply seeing that a certain storable item like pasta or rice is on sale. Well, you bulk up on that while you can. Or like, I like to drink really good coffee. That's why I buy from our vendor partner in the MSB, My Thai Coffee. I just ordered 10 pounds of coffee. Well, I have a vacuum canner. I'll take that coffee and put it in the quart jars, and I'll vacuum seal those jars and put them away in a dark, cool area. That coffee will be just as good a year from now. I don't care what coffee purists say. I've tried it. I've gotten brand new, freshly ground coffee, and I've gotten coffee that was vacuum sealed for a year, and I've made two cups of it and set them side by side. And you know what? If I can't tell the difference, it doesn't matter if you can. That's the way I look at it. It's good quality stuff. It works. So there's all these different ways that we can take advantage of bulk buys, sales, couponing, etc., to save money. The next is convenience. Have you ever wanted to make something and been like, gee, I hope the neighbor can loan me two cups of sugar? I haven't. One, because I don't use a lot of sugar, but two, since sugar stores pretty well, we got a lot of it. right? Or a couple cups of flour, or gee, I don't have pasta. I was going to make some pasta or, or potatoes or whatever. The more you store, the more convenient your life becomes. It's like moving a piece of the store into your home. And then all you're doing when you go to the store, instead of buying what you need, you're restocking the supply. So the convenience factor is through the roof. Now, what did I start out talking about? Something we don't usually think about when we think about food stores. You know, the zombies will come and I'll need my beans and my bacon to survive. No, I started talking about stress. Our lives in America today are so full of stress, it's unbelievable. It is, it is one of the fundamental things that's destroying the health of America. I believe the quality of food and the stress and then the ignorance of those two things coupled with a lack of physical activity that's destroying our health and our nation today, and over-excessive use of pharmaceutical drugs and techniques uh, that we rely on to the exclusion of taking care of ourselves. But stress is one of the main things there. Well, that means that every single thing I can do to reduce stress in my life makes sense. You'll age better without stress. You'll live better without stress. You'll get sick less without stress. Well... Coming home every day and trying to figure out what the hell to do with yourself so you can feed the kids while they scream and yell and fight with each other in the living room over the joystick, or they don't use joysticks anymore, the controller for the video game, that's stressful. Being able to just go boom, 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 dinner is done. Let's put that on a list to restock this week. That's less stressful. So the convenience has this, this multiplying effect on reduction of stress. Then we have insurance of your lifestyle. 
So, in food storage, people never think about the mundane. Okay, the mundane is your 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 spouse comes home either side and says, uh, "Yeah, um, they're cutting our hours in half as a cost saving measure, and for all I know, in a couple of weeks we could be out of a job." <laughs> If you got six months worth of groceries stored, or six months worth of 70% of what you use and 30% is what you buy and produce fresh. Your life has a lot more stability at that point than if you don't. Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you something else. There's a magic to food storage. You start managing the food in your home like a business, and all of a sudden you start managing your whole life like a business. And I don't mean that some uh, boring way. I mean a very proactive way. You start to manage your money like it's a business. You start to manage the flow of your, your, your scheduling like a business, and the stress just drops. And food is where we center our lives around. You don't believe me? Uh, you have an old friend who's contacted you. He's going to be in town. And you don't want to go out to eat at a restaurant. Wait, that's food. So you do go out to eat at a restaurant. That's food. Okay. Or you go have drinks at a bar where you probably order some appetizers with it. That's food. But you decide not to do that. So he's coming or she's coming to your home. Are you cooking? Are you going to have a meal together? Don't you feel like that's like something you should do? Right? You're throwing a wedding like we're all my son's getting married Thursday. I'm actually presiding as the minister in the wedding. After the wedding, do you think food's going to be involved? Think of any major event in our lives. Food becomes a core piece of it. Dinner with the family on Sunday, whatever it is, it's always about food. It's the core. If we don't manage that, and you don't manage the core of your life, how are you going to manage the, the, the peripheral, the edges? You're not. So insurance of your lifestyle. Next is to help others. So you don't have the problem your, 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 your family does, your friends do, your neighbors do. There's a, a major uh, catastrophe in a regional. Power is going to be out for a week. Nobody can get to the store. Wouldn't it be nice to actually be able to help your neighbors? I mean, we have this, this view of survivalists always hold up in a bunker defending their last bucket of beans with an AR-15. Um, to me, I, I care about the people who live around me. And I talk to the people who live around me. And I want those people to be okay. And I'm not going to do it to the point where I'm going to starve while they eat. But if I can help them to get through the more common short-term emergencies, well, I'm going to do it. Or you think also about this. When a family has a tragedy, one of the main things that people around them do is often cook casseroles and put food together and take it over to them. Why? Because stress. It's one less thing that... like. I can't bring back your, your father or your grandfather or your husband by bringing you food for this evening. But what I can do is allow a grieving person to have something to eat for their family without them having to worry about that so they can focus on putting their life back together. The well-stocked pantry lets me be a good citizen to other people. And lastly, yes, for the worst of times as well. As bad as it can get, you're better off with food than not having food. I don't think I need to say much more than that. No matter what you think is the, the worst case scenario for disaster, you're better off with food than without it. Period. So let's now look at what we store. Well, first and foremost, we store what we eat. I mean, that that's where it always has to start. We, we store the stuff that we're going to use anyway, just like we started out with. We also want to store what stores well. Or we want to 
change what doesn't store well into something that stores well. And we want to think about that. Um, we want to store what we can make storable. And we want to store things that store well in volume or prepare well in volume. If you do have a serious, serious regional disaster where people aren't eating well and you want to take care of people, it makes more sense to be able to prepare a lot of food with a small amount of energy and share it in portions than to try to like give everybody their own food to prepare when they don't have the energy equation solved either. So this is where things like rice and beans come in for me, even though I'm paleo. You know, with, 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 a, with a package of rice and a package of beans, a couple of pounds of each, and uh, a, a, a sm relatively small amount of, uh, let's say, something like some sausage, some dried sausage, I can feed half the dadgone neighborhood one meal. And I can do it with a, with a handful of charcoal, a blanket, a big giant pot, and a hole in the ground. So there's a place for these, these, these long-term dry goods, which are primarily carbohydrate, even for those of you like me that keep the carbohydrate in your daily intake to a minimum. I don't have a problem with macaroni. We made some macaroni and cheese last week. It was good. But I had a couple spoonfuls of it alongside a steak, and that was it. You know, I mean, we don't use lots of it. But if we're going to occasionally eat it, we just pull a jar out of our stores, and half a jar of macaroni makes enough for... For us to have macaroni and cheese and have a little bit left over for when the grandson comes over, because he'll eat, you know, he'll eat the heck out of that. And it's a heck of a lot better than that yellow, pasty, gross stuff that comes from craft. I mean, God, right? The ingredients in that stuff's awful. Ours is good quality Durham wheat-based macaroni and real cheese, a little bit of milk or cream. That's the entire, you know, ingredients. There's no seven-syllable words in there. So. It, it, it makes sense to store things that you can prepare in large volumes. or And you want to do it so that you can do it either or. Large or small volumes. I might want to feed the neighborhood for a couple days. I want to, might want to feed myself from it parted out over time. I want to keep the flexibility in there. And, and all of this came together for me when I first started doing this show. And I put together six rules of what I call holistic food storage. And they combine to be survival philosophy tenant number five. Um, I have 12 tenets of survival philosophy, and number five is available in an article on the website. I'll have a link today in today's show notes to it. But I'm going to go through these rules with you and how you use them to create basically a bulletproof plan to manage food in your life. And again, I know that sounds counterintuitive. Why do I need to manage food in my life? And I'm almost like, why wouldn't you manage food in your life? I mean, if you think about it, because we've been lulled into such a, a, a belief system that someone else will just take care of it, it'll always be there. You can just go down to the store tomorrow and get more. Because we have that belief system, we, we've, we've, we've kind of made that like something weird that you would manage food in your life. But again, I'm talking about one of the most core fundamental needs of humanity And one of the, 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 the primary things that causes or relieves stress and one of the primary things that contributes to or takes away from your health, not just from a stress standpoint, but the food we eat is, is, is far more responsible for modern diseases than anything else on planet Earth. So we have something that we need to survive, 
can either keep us healthy or make us sick will be the one of the single largest expenses we will incur in our entire lifetime that we're going to need every single day of our life and can either be a major contributing factor or reduction factor to stress, which has a myriad of other things that it causes, and that we are dependent upon a supply chain for that can sometimes fail. Why wouldn't you manage that? Does it not, if it, when, it, when, when it's put to you that way, Does it not seem completely, you know, asinine that the average American has no plan whatsoever for the management of food in their lives other than I go grocery shopping every week or every other day or whatever it is? Or if I live in New York City, I keep my shoes in my refrigerator and I go out to eat every night. Doesn't it sound preposterous that, that we don't actually teach this in school anymore? We used to play, when I was a kid, we paid lip service to it, at least with something we would call home economics. But it was pretty weak even then. Don't you think the fundamental management of food in our homes should be something that our children are taught in school if we're going to have a public school system? I mean, if we're going to have it, life skills should be part of what we teach our children in school. We do not. Nutrition is not food management. Nutrition is eat the stuff that's on this chart that the government says you're supposed to eat and the quantities that you say we say you're supposed to eat it even though you're not going to. While we put McDonald's and Chick-fil-A in the cafeteria and tell kids not to eat too much junk food and on the school menus call french fries a vegetable and call pizza a vegetable. That, that, that's nutrition in our school system. That is not the fundamental management of money and food in your household which we should be teaching our children, so that we can take responsibility for our, for our futures and that of our children, in the words, words of Bill Mollison. Okay? So, again, why would we have a food management plan for our lives should be answered with why wouldn't we? So here's my six rules to make that happen. So the first rule I've already talked about today a little bit, and that is eat what you store and store what you eat. But let's talk a little bit more about how to do that. I think that's such a, a fundamental um, known thing in the food storage world that it, it doesn't get really examined enough. I mean, of course you know what you eat, right? Do you? What did you eat Wednesday last week uh, for dinner? Some of you know, but most of you don't. I don't remember. I really don't. And if you have two or three kids and a two-income household with two jobs and a couple dogs running around, you might not know what you ate five minutes ago. And it's real easy when we're in the store buying stuff to think, oh, I eat a lot of that because I like that, when you may not eat that much of it. And you ignore the things that you really do eat. Now, if you start storing food, it'll sort of rectify itself in time. But wouldn't it be great if there was a way to do it much faster and just be dead on from the beginning? There is. It's called a food journal. All you need is a little notebook, whether it's one of them little bitty ones, a little 5 by 7 or a great big 8 by 10 or whatever you want. It can be plain paper, college rule. I don't give a damn. You just need a stack of paper. It can be a bunch of computer paper with a staple in it. Set it on top of the counter. For the next two to, two to four weeks, just write down every single thing that you eat and everything the kids eat and everything your spouse eats. And don't cheat. Write down the candy bars and the other stuff you're not supposed to eat, too. Two things will happen. One, you'll get in better shape because you'll start realizing what you're eating that you shouldn't. I'm not saying to judge it. I'm just saying to write it down. I'm telling you, as a human being, you'll start judging it on your own. Number two, you'll make this list that will be absolutely the things that you use most. The best thing to do 
is to run this list for 60 days. Two months will take you through the primary things that your family uses all the time and the quantities that you use them in. And those are the things to focus on storing first if those things are storable or you have room for them. So, so the food journal is one of the most important ways that you can determine what that rule actually means to you. Because that rule means one thing to me and it means something different to you. Some of you guys eat a lot of rice and pasta. I don't eat a lot of rice and pasta. So while I store some because of the convenience and the caloric yield and the ease and the, the, the convenience and the lack of expense, I may not store as much of it as you would, and I certainly don't store that much of it in my rotating pantry for standard use because I just don't use that much of it. But if you do, store that. I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I'm telling you how to manage your life the way that you want it. Now begin using things like copy canning. Copy canning doesn't necessarily have to be cans. It can be boxes, it can be units, it can be items. But let's think of it as a can because it's just an easy way to kind of get our head around this. Let's say that you use a product like canned chili. You just use it for, I don't know, an ingredient and something you make once a month. Uh, and you use two cans when you make that thing, so you need two cans of it a month. So when you go to the store, you usually buy a couple cans of it. Instead of buying two, buy four. Put them in your pantry. And this month, you use the two cans, so you have two cans left. You go back to the store, buy four cans. You put them in your pantry. Now you use two cans the next month, you have four cans in reserve. You keep doing this until you get about three to six months, depending on your end goal, of cans of chili in your pantry. You can do this with a few other things at the same time, but don't try to do it with everything. Pick a few things, weekly shopping, integrated right into what you're doing. It's not that much money. It doesn't change the grocery bill that much because it's like dollar cost averaging your mutual funds in your 401k. Except this is something you're going to use next week instead of maybe when you're 70 if the government doesn't steal it from you. See how that works? And that's the, that's the beautiful thing. Nobody's going to steal it from you. You actually get to keep this stuff. And if its value increases, you don't pay taxes on it ever. Ever. Never. Okay? So we start with that copy canning mentality, and we'll do as much of that as we're comfortable with based on our budget at any given time. But once we get, let's say, six months' worth of that chili in our pantry, we go back to just buying what we're going to use. And all we do is just like the store does. We come home with our two cans of chili, and instead of sticking them in the front, we pull all of the ones that are in to the, to the front, and we put them in the back, and we automatically rotate our food that way. How simple is to, do that, is to do that? I riffed on Kraft macaroni and cheese. But if you're busting your hump and your kids eat it and you feed it to them, I understand. I'd say you could learn how to make it yourself just as quick, but if that's what you eat, that's what you eat. So it could be plain boxes of macaroni and, 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 and uh, cheese that you make cheese sauce in the refrigerator with or whatever you want it to be or dried cheese. There's pretty good dried cheese products out there that you can use to make that. Canned cheese actually makes pretty good macaroni and cheese. It's just kind of expensive unless you buy large cases of it. But uh, we bought some canned cheese. We still have a lot of it. And it's pretty pretty good stuff. And it's, it's, it's very similar to a Velveeta-like cheese. Um, it's pretty awesome stuff. Uh, so there's ways you can even have you know cheese that, that stores without refrigeration. So whatever it is, you keep buying it, you keep building it up until you have six months with it or 90 days of it, whatever it is you want. I believe the six-month overall approach is probably the most balanced one. A year gets really bulky. It's difficult. 90 days may not be enough for a major, even family-level crisis. 
So working towards six months, I think, makes the most sense. But you do what works for you. And, and at that point, like I said, all you do is just start buying the replacements. So you go back to what you were doing anyway. The next thing is you have to think with a meal mentality. You don't just want to store stuff that's one-third of a meal. You want to think about the other things that go into that meal and identify the non-storable items. Those are going to be your, your constantly recurring non-optional expenses, or you're going to have to figure out what you could substitute for them. So if normally this meal goes with something like a steak, so the other items that I can store, and then a steak... I might realize that I can make basically that same plate of food using canned beef, okay, uh, or dry cured sausage, or whatever it is, or a, you know, I don't believe in trying to run my life on vegan alternatives, but there are vegan protein alternatives that can be used, or vegetarian protein alternatives that can be used during, let's say, crisis situations. What would fit? What would what would occupy the protein and fat component? of this mostly carbohydrate plate now? Or how do I store the protein and fat components so that I don't have to over-rely on, 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 on carbohydrates? But again, I, I try to always temper my food storage advice with the fact that I live a paleo-primal lifestyle, and you may not, and that's okay. You live your life your way. That's, that's fundamental to what I teach. Think with a meal mentality. Store what the kids eat, even if it's garbage. The last thing you want in a stressful situation where the lights are out, uh, you can't get to the store, you're snowed in or whatever, is kids complaining. Feed them whatever the heck they eat. Now, I would advise you to try to get your kids eating healthy in good times so you don't have that problem in bad times, but until you do, store what your kids eat. And I'm going to help every parent with a picky eater out there fix your problem in two days. Two days, you'll never deal with it again. Two days, you'll never deal with it again. If you grow a spine. That's what you'll have to do first. First, grow a spine because you don't have one. Second, let your kid go hungry for two, for two days. They'll eat whatever the hell you put in front of them. They won't die. They won't starve. They won't get sick. They won't turn into that little kid you see in Africa on TV with a fly on his face, and they're guilting you into feeding them. Okay? It won't happen. Let your kid get hungry and the dad gone eat. I am so sick of parents. There's a little side rant here. I am sick of you parents. Like, I don't know how to make my kid eat. Let me tell you a story, and this will drive home why. We should be storing food in this country. And how, how sick we are, and we don't get it anymore, that we even think that's a problem. Talk about a first-world problem. My picky eater kid won't eat anything. It's a first-world spineless problem is what it is. Okay? It, the, one of my heroes in this world is a man named Mas Masanobu Fukuoka who wrote a book he's most famously known for, The One Straw Revolution. A second book that he came out with called Sowing Seeds in the Desert. And he talks about going to Africa to help these people learn how to grow their own food again. And seeing a relief camp where little children line up every day. And each day those children will be weighed and measured and tested for health. And if they're de there's only so much milk available. There's basically warm milk with a vitamin supplement. If the child is low enough on the threshold, so let's say they have 500 servings available today, they'll pick the 500 children that are the, the, the closest to death and give them the glass of milk. Starting to feel a little bit guilty for whining about your picky eater? Hold on. I'm fixing to punch you in the face with reality here, okay? 
He said the most horrifying sound in this book that he's ever heard, or the most sad sound he's ever heard, is children weeping because they weren't one of the 500. Now, here's reality punching you in the face. These children weeped because they were deemed to be too healthy and too well-fed for that cup of milk. I don't want to hear that your picky eater won't eat. I don't want to hear it, and I don't want you to be spineless anymore, and I want you to fix your problem with your kids. Until you do, store what they eat. Okay? Next, store pet food. Store pet food. You should never be out of dog food. I mean, if nothing else, store you know, store some dry or whatever, but make sure you store some pet food for, for the animals as well. Livestock owners like me with ducks and all, we... We keep a good supply, and we're adding more ability to keep a deeper supply of feed for our animals. It's something you don't want to run out out of. For us, it's a business expense. I mean, we're selling eggs now. I put out a picture yesterday on Facebook of one of our duck eggs on a plate uh, being played at a restaurant called Ida Claire. Ida, like the name Ida Claire, Ida Claire. Uh, up in North Dallas, uh, one of the coolest new restaurants in Dallas, and our eggs are on the plate there. Um, so we don't want to lose our customers. So that's part of it. But we also don't want to lose our animals. I mean, they're they're part they're they're storage on the hoof, so to speak. I mean, the beauty for me right now is if I have to start culling ducks, I got a lot of drakes I can cull before I go to a, a female, and I can cull enough meat for two days per you know one duck basically is enough meat for two days for us two people. I can do that for a long time before I'm out of meat. That's another thing, but only if I'm able to support them and feed them well. So store food for your animals as well. Rule number two, take advantage of opportunity buys. Watch for sales, use coupons, pattern seasonal trends. Just understand the way all of this stuff works. When you see the opportunity to get a lot of stuff for a little bit of money, that's the time to strike. And make sure you have a system designed and planned so you have a place to put it all. And that moves straight into our next rule. Rule number three is find local sources of food and partake in them. This is far more than what people think it is. This is finding people that are like local producers of food. Just buying from people at your farmer's markets. Forming relationships with local producers. You know, I don't want to raise pigs. I only have three acres. I do enough here. I don't need to, I don't need to raise pigs. I don't. But there's plenty of people around me that do. So it's it's pretty easy to buy a couple pigs every year. The next thing is, you know, we can also learn how to um, acquire food through foraging around us as well. Um, There's always something. There's always something available. Right now, I got lamb's quarters growing all over the property. I do these in stir fries. I use little bits of it in salad and stuff. That's a wild plant. And because I have three acres, you know, and it's a harsh time of year where weeds do better than everything else, there's plenty of it here. But if it wasn't on my property, there's plenty of it around here. That's one example. Blackberries come in the spring, you know. Uh, Acorns come in the fall. Did you know that one of the primary staple foods of Native Americans was acorn? I'm not saying run out and start eating. I mean, there's some work that has to be done, but you might want to at least learn how to do it in case you had to. Because if you've ever looked at the mass that a mature oak tree drops, it's pretty impressive. Berries, greens, herbs, learn what's available. And, you know, hunting and fishing, if you, 
if you learn to do this properly, if you buy a $40,000 bass boat that you have to make an $800 monthly payment on and you go out and catch, you know, two pounds of fish once a week, that financially is not viable. But there's a lot of ways to make fishing one of the most profitable hobbies you could ever have. Especially you live in places where, let's say, jug fishing or trot lining are legal for catfish. I mean, it, it, it's not a big chore to go out on an average day and bring home 20 or 30 pounds of fish. At $4 a pound, it's $120 worth of fish. Um, I used to do it all the time with, with a John boat I had 800 bucks into that ran on $5 worth of gas for about 20 trips where I had to put gas in the tank again. You know, and the, the trolling motor could have been charged with a solar panel for all that. And the bait cost was nothing because it was throwing a cast net, grabbing some shatter minnows, and putting them on a trot line or on a jug line. And the jug lines cost me about a dollar to build, 25 and 25 bucks to build the jug lines. They sat in old milk crates that I just had laying around, and we just go toss them out, and we could bring home, me and my son go out and bring home 50 catfish. I mean... There are ways to make that type of activity viable toward production of food. And if some of the stuff isn't so much profitable, we all need recreation in our lives. So if we take recreational activities that have a byproduct of food, that's good as well. We need to learn about seasonal opportunities. When are these things available, either for forage or purchase? You know, there's times of the year when the local food producers, because everybody grows the same daggone thing and no one understands niche markets anymore, have it in such abundance that they're practically giving it away because they got to get rid of it before it rots. Well, we're in Rule 3. When we get to Rule 5, you're going to see how to leverage all that. But those are the things to be looking for. Rule 4 is now we start looking at these commercial food. This is where all the preppers want to start. You know, five cases of Mountain House or whatever, providing pantry or any of these big number 10 cans of stuff. Well, I think it's like once we get all of the stuff I just said in place... That's when we start saying, which of these commercial long-term storage foods can we use as extenders and adjunct? So remember I talked about we have all these basic things in our pantry that we use all the time, and these make 75% of our meal, and they're easily storable. And then we get to the one bugaboo, which is often meat. And it either takes a lot of energy or specialized equipment or maybe a form of meat that we're not really wanting to make the meat storable. Well, this is where we go to Mountain House and we buy us a great big number 10 can, six cans in a case of beef cubes. Well, now I have all types. And if I buy another case of chicken cubes and I buy one of uh, sausage uh, sausage meat and another one of, of ground burger, I can make all kinds of stuff out of that. So now instead of buying, you know, pallets... I've bought four cases of the things that are the most difficult for me to either provide for or produce for myself in a storable fashion, and now I can extend all this other stuff. So now I can use those meat products, for instance, and there's other things you might do that with, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to go out and buy a case of number 10 cans of freeze-dried green beans. Go down to Sam's Club... And buy six number 10 cans for a quarter of the price, a third, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a fifth of the price of just canned green beans. They taste better than freeze-dried ones. They still last for years. And when you have a big barbecue, pull them out, throw them out in a thing with some bacon on them, feed them to your guests, and replace them as you need to. Why the hell would you go spending all that money for something like a green bean when it's so easy To do so many other ways we can, we'll get to that in a second. There's as much ways we can do it ourselves.
But freeze-dried meat is almost infinitely storable and of the best quality if we could store meat to, to resemble fresh use that there is available. So that's where I start looking at these things for extenders and adjuncts. You know, or meals like a lasagna mix or something like that, or soup mixes and things like that that you can get long-term storage versions of. These make sense. So then we move to rule number five. This is become a producer of food and storables. This is where we get into things like gardens, growing fruit trees and nut trees instead of ornamental trees, having food being produced on our own property, small livestock. Rabbits and quail are probably your two best small livestock options that exist for producing meat and with quail meat and eggs. They're not hard to incubate. You can grow a hundred quail a, a cycle uh, out to, to, to butcher size. You can clean a quail in less than one minute when you get good at it. You don't need any specialized equipment. Uh, a rabbit, buck, and two does will produce more meat for you in a year than, 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 than two meat goats will. And they're also easy to clean, and they're easy to keep, and they're quiet. And you can keep both of those animals in places where you can't get away with keeping chickens. And your rabbits, if you have a real, just, if you just have a nice lawn, you can feed the majority of your rabbits' diet to them out of their out of your backyard. You know, get some white clover going back there, build some rabbit tractors. There's ways you can. Do it. I know not everybody wants to do that, but I'm saying if you're gonna do it, that's the type of thing to do. Chickens are great for egg production. Chickens are great for meat production if you're gonna buy like meat chickens and raise them for eight to ten weeks, and kill them, and make meat out of them. Uh, most of your chickens that you use for egg production are not good meat birds. It's not that they don't have good quality meat. It's they don't produce enough of it. They take too long to grow. They're, they're a financial sink in the world of meat. So it's a coal bird that has a meat byproduct, so we have to look at But chickens are probably the easiest way to produce some protein for your family in the form of eggs. I mean, chickens are stupid easy. They really are. Uh... They can be a pain in the butt, but if you uh, account for them properly, uh, they, they're actually really, really easy to take care of and very, very productive. But those are your, to me, those are your big livestock things. You can consider things like aquaponics and hydroponics and microgreens and all kinds of stuff like that. And I think that as you start to move into that, it starts to make sense to look at, can this be a source for me, but also a source of income? Can I make a small business out of this? Because now we have a financial tool that can be reinvested. We've also taken an expense to ourselves and turned it into a business expense, which makes it a tax deduction. And it's very conceivable that you actually could be manufacturing a small profit, but on the books run as a loss in your hobby farm for quite a while before you actually build it up to a point where it produces a legitimate profit that actually incurs any taxes. By the way, for those of you But for those of you that eventually want a farm or a farmstead or a ranch, they're going to go try to get an ag loan or USDA grant. You want to have a couple of years of a Schedule F being filed. And it doesn't matter if it's for microgreens grown in your upstairs bedroom. As long as it's Schedule F. As long as it's a legitimate farming activity. It's very beneficial toward trying to get financing for things like that. So all of this starts to stack and function and form on top of each other. And the big thing, though, I think it's more important than growing a garden or growing a fruit tree or anything else is learning how to store food, how to take food that's not a storable and make it a storable. Here's my favorite ways to do that. Flash freezing, dehydrating, making jerky or biltong, canning, smoking, confit, and dry canning. 
I can't, I mean, I could do a whole show just on those, and maybe we will next week. We'll just go into those. But I want to give you a very, very brief overview of, of what I mean by flash freezing is generally for vegetables and things. Um, or you can do this with meats too. But when I say flash freezing, what I mean is you get the, the item into the state that it needs to to be frozen properly. So some things you just freeze. But a lot of things need to be blanched. Like green beans, if you freeze be green beans without blanching them, you ruin them. They'll never turn into it. They'll be like this weird, horrible thing. So blanching is usually done with hot water or steam for a set amount of time. You can look it up. And once you've done that, you've got this wet green bean or a wet piece of broccoli or wet whatever. You spread them out on a tray. You freeze them solid, and then you bag them up and put them in your chest freezer, deep freezer, etc. That way you can take out a handful instead of a big chunk. Okay, um, dehydrating is pretty self-explanatory. I use an Excalibur Nitrate dehydrator. A lot of people have written me and said they want something bigger. I'll tell you what: get a Nitrate Excalibur dehydrator, see what it takes to fill it up, and you won't worry very much anymore. And if you want to go bigger than that, build yourself a solar dehydrator. But there's so many cool things we can do with dehydration. I'm still eating dehydrated sweet and hot peppers that I grew in Arkansas. I've been here in this house now. I'm going on my third year. Think about that. And they're from the year, the summer before we left. So they're five years old. And yesterday I opened up another quart jar of green and red dehydrated jalapenos that we put up into a dry storage can in a dehydration that long ago. So dehydration works, especially for things like that. You're using more as ingredients and flavors. Corn dehydrates well. Green beans, I, I, I can't really tell if there's been a green bean that was dehydrated or a green bean that was freeze-dried. So that's why I'd be more inclined to go down to the farmer's market in, in green bean season and buy enough green beans to fill that dehydrator two times and put that stuff up and then either vacuum seal it or dry can it uh, in, in a jar uh, than I would to buy you know a, a number 10 can of them from Mountain House. It just doesn't make sense to me. That's not what that technology is best utilized for. Uh, jerky and biltong. Jerky, I think there's tons of recipes. Biltong, I've talked about it a lot. I will put a link in the show notes to where I made some biltong today. But it's basically thick meat. When I say thick, an inch by an inch kind of size stick. Uh, basically, if you're, you're doing whole meat, you kind of demuscle it and then work from there. You, you dredge it in apple cider vinegar. You coat it with salt, pepper, coriander, let it sit overnight in the fridge, hang it up, and let it dry out in a dry area. If you have an air-conditioned home, you just hang it up in a room until, for about seven to eight days. That's all you do. You don't need a box. You don't need a dehydrator. In the video that I'll post today, I used a dehydrator because so many people asked about it. It ruined it. It doesn't need it. It's made in the wilds of South Africa in the bush in the dry season, hung up in the shade. Uh, so jerky is basically meat sliced thin, dried in the sun, or dried with smoke, or dried with heat. Biltong is thick meat, prepared a little bit differently. Dried in cool, dry air. That's the only difference. They're both wonderful. Canning, I do a lot of canning since I've, I found this canner, an electric canner. Now, it only does the small jars, right? It only does the small jars. Um, look, four of them. But it's electric, and it pressure cans. It's the only electric canner that i found that reliably pressure cans. Now, I, know, I also have a great big all-American stainless steel canner, that you know, my great-great-great-grandkid will probably be able to use. It'll last that long. And I love it for what it is for large batches. The thing is, I don't have to do that many large batches. What we do, like all winter long, we make different soups, and we make a big pot of soup. Well, by the time we eat soup that week, we might want to put up four, you know, eight to 12 jars. That's three batches. 
And with this little electric canner, all we do is we get the lids out, we put the lids in some hot water, we rinse the jars, we put the soup into the jars, we put the lid on the jar, wipe the rims with vinegar, and then we stick the four jars in the canner, we set the timer, and we walk away. And the soup just sits on top of the stove. And when it's time to, to do the next batch of jars, we turn the oven back on and bring the, the soup to steaming hot into the next four jars, push the button, and it takes care of itself. Do that three times on a lazy Sunday afternoon, you got 12 jars. You've done almost no work. You take the canner, you rinse it out, you put the cord back in it, stick it up in the cabinet, and go on with your life. Now, you do that every week all winter long, and you end up with a lot of stuff in your pantry without hauling out that big canner and coming up with all these different recipes and stuff. Or, you know, if we make a big uh, thing of meat, a lot of times what I'll do, if we have, like, I'll make a big two, two big pork shoulders on the smoker, and we'll just take and, and use some broth and do the same thing, 12 cans of canned pork or canned beef or whatever, same way. And then that meat doesn't go to waste. And, and if I if I just want to put four cans of it up, you know, are you going to get, you know, the the big canner out for four pints of of of, of canned beef, and then get that thing going and and all of that nonsense, or just four cans, boom, 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 pour some beef broth on them, put the lids on them, stick it in there, push a the button. I love that little canner. I mean, I, it's a pressure cooker and does a bunch of other stuff too, but I've used it ninety percent just for canning. It's it's awesome. I really recommend people for small batch canning look at getting one of these things. I think they're like a couple hundred bucks. Again, I'll put a link in today's show notes for it. Smoking doesn't really make stuff last forever unless you're doing smoking with curing, like making country hams and country bacons and stuff like that. But it does extend it, and I love the flavor. Confit is something a little bit specialized, but it's basically slow-cooking meat in fat. The most classic is duck cooked in its own fat. It's salted first. It will store in a jar in the refrigerator for, for a month or more. Um, and dry canning. And dry canning I do with a product called a vacuum canner. It is the most versatile product that I have. It is so awesome. It is so fast. And for dry goods, I have not vacuum sealed something in a bag since I got it. In fact, I, g I gave away my vacuum sealing, my bag sealer. Because it's just so much easier. The way it works is so simplistic. You put the items in your jars. You put the same lids that you use for regular canning on a regular ball canning jar. You put the rings on them until they're just barely finger tight. You back them off a quarter turn. You put the lid on it. You plug a pump in. You attach the pump. You close the valve. You turn the pump on, and it pulls it down to like outer space pressure. This is like a big industrial pump like they use for air conditioning maintenance. And then you shut the pump off, you open the valve, the can seal, you label your jars, and you put them away. And it's a big canner. So it's fast. I mean, it takes about two minutes per batch. It takes more time to put the food in the jars than it takes to run the canner. And then the, the pump, all the stuff fits right back in the – it's a converted pressure canner that does this. It all fits right back in there. You put the lid on it, put it away. And again, I just ordered, so I bartered a while ago for this really awesome espresso maker. It was like a $500 espresso maker at the barter blanket here. I got for an old rifle that I'd, I'd got from a, a gun show that I was going to make a project and never got around to doing the project on it. So I, the guy got a rifle, I got my espresso machine, and it sat in a box for like a year. 
because we were going to remodel the kitchen. We didn't really have space for it. The old kitchen was terrible. The Finally, the remodel of the kitchen is over, so some cooking videos will be coming and food prep videos will be coming soon because uh, the kitchen's really set up nice to do that now. Um, but so we set up the new espresso maker, and I realized I had no espresso coffee, and it took me like a week of playing with it to realize, dummy, you have a coffee grinder. You get the existing coffee grinds and make them fine. But So I ordered some really nice espresso coffee from Mai Tai, five-pound packs, two different ones, ground for espresso. Now, most espresso aficionados grind their beans every day and all. I like convenience. So when that gets here, I'll take a bunch of quart jars, I'll fill them with it, I'll put them in that vacuum canner, I'll can them up, I'll stick them back in the dark part of the pantry in the coolness, and I'm telling you, you might be like the the equivalent of a sommelier of coffee, and you might be able to tell the difference, I can't, I'll be happy. And that's just one example of what that product does for me. And, you know, people like say, you know, that's kind of like yuppiest to have an espresso machine, but hey, I can shoot zombies while I drink a cappuccino. I absolutely can, and I just might do it. And it'll be better than sitting around eating a dried piece of pork chop out of a number 10 can with no water for it. Just saying. Anyway, little aside there, but seriously, the dry canner is awesome. I'll have a link to where you can find out more about the vacuum canner uh, as well today. Um, but understand, I believe that producing storables from other foods is your silver bullet. When you can take stuff that's normally not storable and make it storable, the whole world opens up. And it allows you to do things, like I said, so you're going to smoke a pork shoulder, okay? Instead of buying a little pork shoulder, go buy the great big one. Well, we're not going to eat it all. Okay, buy the great big one. After it's done smoking, cut it in half. Shred it, put half of it into cans. Put it in a little cheap canner. Cover it with pork broth that you've made you know, from the bones. And then can it and put it up. So you make maybe 12 cans of that. Now you have it. It's available whenever you want it. The rest of it gets eaten fresh. It's carnitas or whatever. right? And, and just start thinking about how many times can you do that now? How many times can you do a bulk buy, eat half, store half? Bulk buy for almost the same price as what you would have paid anyway, eat half, store half. Bulk buy, eat half, store half. Bulk buy, eat half, store half. All of a sudden the pantry just goes, it just fills up. And it's so easy to learn. This little electric canner, the vacuum canner, learning to dehydrate, learning to flash fresh freeze. If you just learn those things, and all the water bath canning and stuff that you would do that's, that's a little easier than pressure canning, this little electric pressure canner, you just run a shorter cycle and it'll do just fine. It'll do just fine for that too. Or you can get a water bath canner and learn how to do that as well. You start learning to do fermented foods with this, and then the big thing is become a great cook. Start stretching what others consider waste. Learn how to use these, all these things. And learn where rice and beans fit in. Again, you know, with a, a couple rings of dried sausage that store really well, and uh, a few, you know, a couple pounds of beans and a couple pounds of rice, I can feed everybody adjacent to my property and adjacent to them for one good day with everybody with a full belly. And I can do it for about 15 bucks. 15 bucks, and I can, I can, I can use, again, a handle, a handful of kindling thrown in one of my little rocket stoves to bring it up to temperature, take a great big pot, wrap it in a blanket, and bury it in a cooler, and let it sit there all day and feed everybody a meal that night. 
because of the storability of rice and beans. I can do dried corn. There's so many things I can add to something like that that will just make it taste fantastic. Again, I like to keep the carbohydrates down. I don't like to live on legumes and starch products, but I see the place for them and where they work. So that's the way they fit there. So the sixth rule is we take all of these things. Like As I went through this, I bet there were parts you kind of gravitated towards. That's okay. There's places you can become better at it and do more with it. But in essence, you want to become a holistic practitioner of food storage. Rule six is seek that holistic solution. None of these rules stand alone. And a formula is always more than its parts. So if we're copy canning and we have the materials, then when it comes time to can up a bunch of uh, shredded pork, And we need some broth. The broth is already in the pantry, so I don't have to go get it. So it's all stress-free. It's, here's your plate of food, Johnny. Push the button on the canner and go sit down and eat yourself, Mom and Dad. And, and that's one example of how this all fits together. But it's all about function stacking. If I'm practicing opportunity buys in Rule 2, then I'm, I am better able to do that if I've, I've practiced Rule 5 and become a producer of storables. If I'm finding local for sources of food and I'm keeping a deep pantry, it's easier for me to use those local sources of food with other food that I already have. And it's easier for me to take that and combine it with Rule 5 and take the local food and turn it into storable long-term food. If I'm being a producer of my own food, it's easier to magnify that if I know storage techniques. If I'm producing my own food and I have a deep pantry, whatever I've produced fresh this week probably has something already in the pantry to go in with it. And again, I want to ask you a question. Why the hell aren't we teaching kids this? Why the hell aren't we teaching our people this? Do you not think, for all of the talk about security of our nation, if we taught people to properly manage their finances, their homes, their food, do you not think our nation would be more secure? Do you think there'd be less stress in our nation? Do you think there'd be less infighting in our nation? Why aren't we doing it? Because it doesn't benefit the people in power. Everything I've talked about today has one common theme that comes down out of it, decentralization. See, right now, all of your responsibilities that we're talking about are centralized. Somebody else makes the food storable. Somebody else produces the food. Somebody else cooks the food. Somebody else manages the inventory. Somebody else manages the financial side. Somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. Who are those somebody else's? They're the giant multinational corporations, and they're the government. Everything I've talked about today takes all those responsibilities and takes at least some of them out of the hands of the centralized authority and puts it right in your lap where it belongs so that it's custom-tailored to your life, your needs, your budget, and your diet. Why the hell wouldn't you do this? I want one person out there that was forced to listen to this by a friend today to tell me why you wouldn't do this other than I'm broke and I can't figure out how to get started. And I will solve that problem for you if that's your problem. If you do it the way I said, eventually you'll have more money. And it won't cost you much more to begin with, so it's not a problem. So even the food journals want expense, right? Well, you can go find some leftover paper and do that. So unless you're dead broke and literally scratching today's money to feed yourself tonight, you can do this. Why wouldn't you? And if you are in that state, it behooves you to bust your ass to get out of it and make this one of the first things you do to make sure you never go back into that state. Why aren't we teaching it? Why aren't we doing it? Why wouldn't you? And the answer is there's no compelling reason not to. 
This is not doomsday. See, doomsday preppers was one of the worst things and best things to ever happen to the prepper movement. The, the, the good thing about it is it got people to start asking questions like, well, what if something does go wrong? Maybe I should have a little bit of extra food and water, that type of thing. The bad thing was it completely poisoned people's minds to the reality of what prepping was all about. Because the producers of the show only wanted the most sensational representations of prepping possible. Those idiots contacted me at least a dozen times, and I told them to pound sand where the sun don't shine. That I would never work with them because they were a disgrace to what I stood for. And that's what that. So if you're a person that was talked into listening to today's show, and that's your view of what prepping is, your view is about as accurate as let's say if your view of basic physical fitness was people in triathlons. And at least they make sense. But if, if you if you thought that to be physically fit, you had to be like a triathlete, right? Or a decathlete. Or an Olympic-level athlete, right? The extreme version of athletics was the only thing that applied to athletics. That's what this extreme prepping is. I'm not even saying that some of those... See, some of those people on those shows, they're extreme, but they're actually rational and they make sense, but the show would never present them that way. The show absolutely refuses to present them that way. They put words in their mouth. They tell them what they're prepping for. It's all about making people sell themselves out for 15 minutes of fame that doesn't last and don't get you nowhere. That's why I refuse to get involved with it. But because of those types of shows and because of the hype and the hoopla and Y2K going back you know, 15 years now and, and 2012 and all this other stuff, those are your new show. In 2011, you know what I was telling people? If you want some really great supplies... Wait until February of 2012 and go on Craigslist. And you'll see all kinds of stuff being sold cheap. Because the people who are prepping for that were prepping for the wrong reasons in the wrong way. That's not what this is about. This is about basic lifestyle management. This is about saying to yourself, you know what? There's, there's an old saying, food on the table and a roof overhead. That's why I work. That's why I provide for my family. So I can give them those two things. And half of that equation is food. And if it's that, that gone important, then it's, it behooves me to make management of it for myself and my family a responsibility for it for myself and my family, a priority in my life. And watch. Watch your whole life start to shape up right around it. Watch, the, watch you start to develop systems and methodologies for everything in your life. From that point forward, it's not that hard. It's not that difficult. It really isn't. Give it a shot. It'll be worth it. I promise you. In fact, what I want to finish with today is I believe that storing food empowers you to live a better life. It really does. It takes, again, it takes away stress, and it all of a sudden makes you what we should all be. But we're not taught to be anymore. Responsible adult. I don't think food storage is prepping. I think it's being a responsible adult. If you're the head of a household and you haven't taken the management of your food supply for your family into consideration and carefully planned out how you will feed your family for now and the future, then you are an irresponsible adult, not a responsible adult. Responsible adults give a shit about themselves. They take responsibility for themselves and for that of their children. And if the way I'll feed myself next week is I'll hope money's here and I'll hope there's food on the shelves, and I hope that I can get there, and I hope I can put together a nutritional meal, that's not responsibility. If it's next week, 
if I can't get any of those other things done, there is a plan in place, then that's responsibility. And if that plan in place is called dominoes, that's not responsible. It's not. I'm not beating up on pizza delivery or anything like that either. I'm just saying that's not responsible. You don't know for sure that will be an option. I know people that have maxed out every line of credit that they have. And if we went back over 10 years, we'd find a surprisingly large amount of money on credit cards that went to things like pizza and fast food. Because it's only five bucks here and it's only ten bucks there. And yeah, that's all good and well until it all adds up ten, twenty years later. And you're sitting down with your, your hand in your face going, how did I do this to myself? How am I in my mid-forties and I'm, I have a financial cancer in my life of debt? And, and, and people think, well, it's cars and mortgages and all. It's all this other stuff, too. It just makes sense. Just like Dave Ramsey teaches with debt snowball, take the smallest debt, pay it off first, and take that debt and combine it to the next and whatever. Putting your life in order, start with the most fundamental thing, food. Start with that. Take complete and total control over the management and, 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 and inventory and control of your food supply. And if you do that, you'll create this core, this foundational center. And then say, okay, I'm going to take this approach and I'm going to apply it to money and debt next. And you do that. You do money, debt. Money and debt go together like one thing. But you do have to have the, the, the input side, the acclimation side, investment side is the money, and the reduction side and stopping the bleeding is cutting off the debt and paying it off. You get the debt killed, the money managed, the food managed. You can't have a screwed up life anymore except when chaos enters. It like someone gets cancer or whatever. And you're still better off than had you not done it. If you want to know why our grandparents were so capable of being pragmatic and level-headed and cool, I'll tell you one thing almost all of them had in common. They had this skinned. Now, I'm not saying this is the only thing you need to do, but I'm saying if you can't do this, you probably can't do any of the other things. And the good news is you can do this. This is not hard. This is easy. It fits right into your existing lifestyle. You don't have to radically change. You don't have to go out and buy camouflage clothing. You don't have to take ranger sniper training. You don't have to do any of that crap. All you have to do is say, this is a fundamental component of my life. I'm going to take control of it now. That's it. That's not hard. I've given you the basic blueprints of how to do it today. Take a look at the article. I'll have a link to that on today's show notes. You can look up stuff about the vacuum canner, the, uh, the electric canner, all that other stuff, and just pick little parts of your life and start doing it. But I challenge all of you who have never done it before, start keeping a food journal today. Do it for 60 days. And it will give you the blueprints to make everything about the nutritional part of your life, the food part of your life, and all of the good and bad that comes with it better. Trust me, give it a shot. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.